Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot today along with James Winter, our trusted foodie navigator. Hello! And on today's show, as the restaurant industry endures a period of unprecedented hardship and challenge, we explore what life is like on the front line of this battle, with one of Britain's most experienced, respected and entrepreneurial chefs, the illustrious Cyrus Toddywalla, delving into what it means to run restaurants in 22 and what possible solutions might help pull the industry back from the brink. So as we dive into a new year with new hope, join us for a journey to the centre of the restaurant world. Hello James. So this is a bit of a journalistic tack for us today, isn't it? But I feel like something that we're really interested to explore. Right? Yeah, and it's something that, you know, everyone has got a view on. Everyone has had an engagement with a restaurant or a pub or a bar or, 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 or whatever, you know, at some point over the last couple of years and, and, and had a view. And, you know, we hear lots of, of very, very well-meaning sort of politicians and advisors talking about the struggles and challenges that the restaurant industry faces. But, you know, it's good to get a, a ground level perspective on it and to, to, to speak to someone who honestly we talk about champions of industry and all and industry and, and this you know cyrus is a champion in in all ways you know he's, he's you know he's he's just i mean if you were to make a route mount rushmore of, of of people in the food industry i would absolutely be campaigning to have cyrus's face front and center of that because this man <laughs> You know, what a mountain! It, what a mountain that would he be! Is, as well, well and, and he is a man mountain. When he when he slaps you on the back, you know he's there physically. <laughs> he shakes you. He's a wonderful, warm, generous human being that comes through in everything that he does. But also, it's for passion and dedication and unflinching ability to just get on with it and get things done. You know, that keeps you going. And hopefully, that's what we'll, we'll be able to explore a bit with him and try and try and get to the you know, the, the centre of, of what is it inside him that drives you to keep going when, when the challenges seem unsurmountable. But actually, you know, it's, it's a passion and a love for this industry that I've, you know, un, it's unequaled in anybody I've ever met in my time across it. So he's a wonderful man and he obviously cooks wonderfully delicious food, as we will learn, but comes with a very heavily buttered bread roll, you know, every opportunity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so let's meet our guest host for today. Uh, as James said earlier, when you were describing off off Mike James you said if there was um in Lord of the Rings he would be a king which I think absolutely (laughs) he'd have a kingdom because in my mind you know there are certain characters that in these in these lands these mythical worlds that great writers create where where characters come out and they're riding a giant moose with enormous (laughs) horns or or a huge sort of swollen pot-bellied sort of boar like pig and they enter the battlefield and just knock everyone asunder with their their, and and cyrus is is one of those you know enormous characters you know he 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 dominates the the landscape in so many ways but it's just as i said before he's a champion he wears you know his armor in other ways but he's you know he's a shining beacon of of brilliance for me he grew up in Bombay, where he first fell in love with cooking. Then he came to London and ran the Namaste restaurant and developed his trademark style of blending traditional Indian techniques and flavours with more unexpected ingredients. This led to him owning the hugely successful Cafe Spice Namaste group. He's also gone on to win an MBE and then an OBE. He has worked with the NHS, Conservation Trust's cooked for the queen and as james said rides around on a fantastic culinary moose uh, <laughs> which is the oddest introduction he's ever had in his life cyrus toddywell we are delighted to have you on the show welcome sir <laughs> thank you very much i've tried a donkey once and it came up very long i nearly broke my chin at that time and i got a slap from my father at the same time 
<laughs> and we should say this is one of the interviews we love where Cyrus is in his whites, in his apron, in his quiet, a quiet corner of his kitchen. So um, any crashing and banging we hear in the background is is because we are once again in the kitchens and uh, on the front line, which is which is wonderful. And Cyrus, we want to delve into all aspects of your career, and I'm really fascinated to hear how it all begun. There's some wonderful stories in there, but I thought a really interesting place would be to start with right now. And from your okay. perspective, as an entrepreneur, restaurant owner, tell us what it's really like at the start of 2022 in the restaurant industry. The signs are that people are still afraid, very afraid. And if you go around the streets of London, it looks like it's still a ghost town in some places. It is very deserted. Those, those that have delved into takeaways and those that have been established in takeaway business have done extremely well. Hmm. The delivery companies are up 70, 80, 90% on their volumes. I'm not sure that every restaurant that gets in a takeaway makes any money out of it, unless the volumes are really high, because the delivery companies take between 30 and 40% of the revenue. Oh, really? I didn't know they took that much. That's and crazy. They, they take that much. Plus, you have your costs. So you have your costs of containers, cooking, blah, 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 etc., etc., and you lose between 35, 30 and 35% of your uh, revenue. So does it suit, the, which, but, which kind of restaurants does it suit? Chain restaurants and ones that can turn things around quicker and cheaper? The chain restaurants, the ones that have opened up purely from dark kitchens or black kitchens or whatever you call them and are concentrating and focusing purely on takeaway and delivery business. The people like us will suffer because we buy very high quality ingredients and we buy high-end ingredients from very known suppliers or because for me, for example, 90% of my produce is from farms directly. They do not come from big suppliers. So for me, I pay the price the farmer deserves to be paid. And for us to get down the cheap end of that market for takeaway food would be even more lethal because we anyway don't make much profit. And on top of that, to get into giving massive discounts is penalizing us in a big way. And also things go off so quickly as well. You'd have to be guessing how many takeaways you were going to serve each night, even if you could get yes. margins right. Mm. And yes. I think so. That's I mean that's I think that's a point. Good point, Jay. That people don't realise that running a restaurant is 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 a bit like rolling the dice. You know, you take a punt on how many people are going to come. Yes, you have bookings, but you're hoping for more. But you're never certain, are you, that you're going to be able to sell everything that you've committed to? You know, and 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 obviously, it only has a limited lifespan. You know, you can't. It's not like any other kind of retail outlet where things can stay on the shelves and can sit there till the consumers come back. You've got to get rid of it and buy it again. Yes, but in December, we had bookings for parties, events, etc. We all geared up. We ordered everything in. Everything got cancelled. Oh God, Every single thing. One announcement and everything was cancelled. And nobody came out. So we lost thousands of pounds in revenue. But we also have now owe our suppliers a lot of money because the produce was ordered. And just yesterday, six people didn't turn up. Just like that. Diners. When diners or workers. Diners. Yeah. Diners, and when we call the guy, oh, I forgot. You see. So and do you take a credit card do put down payment for for bookings now or not? You're not sure. We yeah. do for a very long time. Mm. We didn't. We suffered a lot. What we have told the guest is, we'll hold that rep money, and if you come back within two months to dine at the restaurant, we will cut it off your mm. bill. We are being that. Yeah, that's a very generous way of looking at it because that could still work out as a loss. It's very generous, but customers don't appreciate that. They do not appreciate that. Uh, what it takes for a restaurant to get geared up for something and suddenly bingo 
you decide not to turn up. It's a, it's a big I mean, especially Christmas, you think of the time of year that if you were to target an area where you could, could make make something back out of the bad times, you could make it back. Christmas would be the one, right? And then suddenly, because I'm guessing January is pretty dead normally anyway. It is. It's the slowest month of the year. Uh, the pub industry apparently has lost uh, about 100 million pounds in those two weeks of trading dime across Britain. That's a little estimate. The restaurant industry must have lost... Uh, few hundred million i'm sure banqueting parties everything cancelled mm. and so it's like that but uh, january is slow so we try and do a couple of events and we try and raise some money from interesting people who come for special dinners or whatever and that we keep the clock ticking because we got a lot you know a lot of the people that listen to the show are chefs and restaurateurs and just foodies you know who want to go and spend money as well how are you yeah how are you adapting how are you rolling with the punches on this what are you doing to because it doesn't seem to me looking in your eyes you're not you know this is hard but you're not giving up this feels like you're you're adapting and rolling with it i have two pictures next to my desk they're now gone home because we haven't established an office yet. one's a pelican with a frog in its mouth <laughs> And the frog is grabbing the pelican's uh, neck. So the pelican bites, the frog bites his neck, says, never give in. <laughs> First motto. Two, I have a big picture with a frog sitting on a branch with a broken branch sticking out, touching his belly. It says, all progress resulted from those that took unforgiving positions. <laughs> <laughs> These are amazing. Okay, I love it. Think of the frogs is what yeah. you're saying. Think yeah. of the two frogs. So, uh, <clears throat> and why should you give up? I mean, we got into the industry not to run away from it. It's very easy to run away. But we are here to fight. And we've got people that have been with us for so many years. Binay is sitting next to me there, if you can see him. Uh, Binay, give a wave. Hey, Binay. <laughs> right. So Binay inherited me in 1991 when I came from India. Wow. Okay. With you the whole journey. Now, he was just a college student then. He is a very key individual of ours. He looks after all our websites, all the other issues, the telephone contracts, the electrical contracts, blah, blah, blah. You name it, we thrust it all on Binay. <laughs> because I know A, B, C, D. I can punch with two fingers. <laughs> Binay is fast. Now, people with Binay, there were four others, five others, sorry, two have passed away. They, the rest are all wow. still with us. It's amazing. That's incredible. Most of our staff have been with us for 18, 19, 20 years. The youngest is 11 years old with us. Wow. So how can you desert them? How can I run away from them? And we have been through such tremendous difficulties you cannot imagine. Having been thrown out of a restaurant, you've been established for 25 years to relocate, to reposition. How do you find the salaries to pay the mm. staff? I'm the lowest paid employee in Cafe Spice. <laughs> it just happens to be the owner. I am the lowest paid I think paid you're employee. touching on something that is part of the secret of this. It's, just, it, it, it's about retainment of people. And to do that, you have to invest in them. You, you are a supporter, I know, of investing in people. But you, you live by that motto. You invest in the people around you with your knowledge and your passion and your, your care and your love. And they develop and they grow and they stay with you. That's how it happens. And it's something that people desperately try and learn or, or try to learn when it's too late. But it's something that I can see from what you're saying is, is naturally part of your dynamic. And I think, you know, I, I, I suppose I'm just trying to, to is, is there any 
conscious method to this? I mean, is there something you can impart to people who, who struggle with staff, that struggle with retaining people for 11 weeks, let alone 11 years? You know, what, what's, your, what's your thinking about that? How do you look after people? I think the first most important factor is people are perishable commodities. And this is a big mistake everybody makes is they think, they think of them as that rather than think of them as part and parcel of your own being. For example, much of the success that I may have achieved on a personal level is thanks to people like Binay and all of them who work with us. Okay? If they don't allow me to go out and do things that I like doing, I will not be allowed to do and achieve what I have tried to achieve. So I'm only as good as what my people allow me to achieve. If it has a positive impact on them and their lives, then I am better for it. If it has a negative impact, of course, they will find their own way and out of the situation. So I think the first and most important thing for our industry is a we are learning now much many, many years later. We are all very selfish as an industry. Everyone does their own bits. Large organizations do their own bits. The smaller ones can't afford certain things. And they just run a business the way they think they should run because they have to manage on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think if anything COVID is going to teach this industry is how it can come together and work collectively. Though it is still poor at it, because the larger organizations can invest money into training, money into HR, money into all sorts of things. The smaller guys can't afford anything. And uh, But it's, it's how we can impact on training in general and making people feel part of our industry. Government successfully coming to Britain, I learned one thing, that hospitality is of the least importance to our governments. I'm not saying government, I'm saying governments. They have never put a finger on it. It is never treated as a successful contributing industry. It employs nearly 5 million people. It has a turnover of 150 billion pounds a year for the exchequer. Even then we cannot have a minister of our own. Even then we confuse it with tourism, with this, with media and sports. So the minister for DC, MS, culture, media and sport, happens to be very qualified to look at hospitality. <laughs> he is not, or she is not. And I think hospitality needs to be publicized. There is no single industry that can accept a person who's blind, who's dumb, who's deaf, who's half crippled, who's uneducated, who comes from far corners of the world. No industry will accept everybody as much as our industry will accept people. And yet, it never gets the recognition because the industry itself has never bothered to publicize itself. It has never bothered to make an impact on the government to tell people, if you don't know anything, go become a waiter or a cook. Mm. Yeah. It's wrong. It's not respected, is it? It's, it's not a, respected it's a profession. profession. The, the outcome is often respected. Yes. And people at the very highest level are sort of turned into kind of, you know, there, there is a level of sort of uh, awe of certain certain celebrities. But you're right, as an industry in, in its whole, it's not seen It's seen as a service, not something yep. to be loved and cherished and looked at in the same way that we look at the music industry, for example, or something like that. We're very proud of that. And we sort of think it defines the country. It's also cultural. Mm. In, in India, it's the same culture. It's the hierarchical culture, the class system. 
You also have a caste system, of course, in India. So you don't have here. You've got multiple religions, like we are here. At the moment, we are in Newham Council now. Newham has the largest amount of languages spoken in any one part of the world. There are 164 languages spoken in Newham. Really? That's so cool. That's I had no amazing. idea. That's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah. So which city in the world has that number of people living in it, thriving in it, succeeding in it, finding jobs, finding anything to do? I think there's any other city in the world that has so many languages or so many people from so many far corners of the so, world. So, I mean, that leads me on to thinking about sort of in the education sector. I mean, we've talked about this on the, on the podcast before and, and we're all very passionate about it. But in the same way, culinary skill is, is way down the list of educational priorities in this country so people aren't being sort of shown that there is value in learning the skill of, of culinary craft you know let alone the business commercial potential of running a, a restaurant business so as you say it's a cultural attitude that I, I think is endemic in in britain and maybe further afield in the world i'm not i'm not an expert on that but you know it's kind of how do we it, it often feels such an enormous chasm of, of of sort of disjointedness around food and, and our attitude towards it that often feels insurmountable but i guess you know what i'm hearing when i when i hear to listen to you speak so as i hear the, a beacon of hope there there is a beating flame that can can attract people to you know and it's how how does the industry come together to not only help itself to have a more sustainable future but also to inspire young people as they go through their educational journey to see the culinary craft as a as a as a, as a, a valuable journey for them I and mean, what can we do i mean you do so much so, so what, what what's a, what what's the answer so many questions you thrown up in one sentence <laughs> number one we live in hackney i worked in tower hamlets now i work in newham they are three of the most obese boroughs in the country right they have the highest rates of diabetes heart problems etc because of the ethnic mix and because of poverty pockets where people source cheap food poor food bad for health if this has always stirred the government is talking about improving school meal is talking about reducing obesity is talking about reducing illnesses or oh, why hasn't it talked about educating young people on food to start with your biggest problem lies with lack of education on food and god knows how many trumpets i have beaten i have got exhausted how many meetings i have attended and how many people i have tried to help and the whole question is even adults when they grow out of that into adulthood they do not understand food and they do not understand what's good for them what's bad for them what they ought to eat they want bad food yes i will eat a kentucky fried chicken every now and again if i feel like it but do i eat it all the time do i you know a sponge on it can i cook food cheaply but yet wholesome and nutritious and these are things that I'm involved with several charities, as you would know, James. And uh, I go out and teach them how to cook simply and create more value out of half a kilo of rice that can feed 10 people in their homes or whatever else. And I'm starting those classes again here now. So we are going to be working with a couple of local charities as well to help them out. But uh, the, the question is that when you work with a government body, you come to realize that the thinking is only five-year-old. Yeah. And it mm. is a five-year thinking process. 
it is not a long term thinking process so if i am the minister for education or whatever in a year my portfolio might change i might go into some other portfolio which i may not have maybe don't have the experience maybe don't have the knowledge maybe i depend on people who feed me but i set policies in place for education and then i'm gone mm. and so the policies are always never long term if mm. you look at the way we say teachers are upset heads of schools are upset teachers feel they're over pressurized then things happen it's because there's a constant change mm. and the constant change comes because somebody thinks it's a good idea to throw out the baby with the dishwater and then put give birth to a new baby and each time this happens <laughs> it confuses people yeah it confuses yeah. people who matter and you are burdening people with so much pressure that they don't have time for other activities so i give you a small suggestion i also happen to be a deputy lieutenant of greater london okay so as a deputy lieutenant we are uh, obliged to serve her majesty because we are her direct uh, representatives in public now one That's of a very impressive title by the way i hope you get a fantastic hat with that because that is a great title a deputy lieutenant of london of greater london uh -huh. yeah Wow! But uh, I've heard that before. But I, I have, I have refrained from having my uniform, sir. I, I would, <laughs> I would skewer myself with the sword that hangs from my waist. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that. Next thing you know, I have a limp and I've torn my uh, <laughs> cartilage or something like that. <laughs> but, but to, so where was I? So one of the things that we try to do very much a, is to bring about how do we bring about discipline. and how do you bring about more culture in young people the one of the best rules is the the uniform services the cadet forces army navy air force young people loves love uniform because they suddenly feel important plus they get in, involved in so many activities all three of these services required heavy discipline yeah they require discipline they require mindset but they also bring about a feeling of community yeah. and you see crime dropping you see other things dropping you see education soaring in the schools that take part i am banging my heads with so many schools the heads say leave us alone we don't have time but i say the amount of advantage it brings to your young people you will change everything yeah. one of the messages from the palace this time has for us been in one of our uh, separate committees to look at how we can help juvenile knife crime and what we can do about that and every time you look at that very closely you see fragmentation mm. yeah and how do you put those fragments together like a jigsaw puzzle and if you bring it into a package you will see a benefit across the board as of course the clink as you know the charity the yeah. clink so i am the national lead ambassador for the clink i took over from uh mr ru who passed away and uh, so now all of a sudden my role has become a little bit more difficult because now we got lots more prisons we are trying to introduce the education system into mm. the government is finally coming around and maybe there are 72 prisons now that may adopt the system wow they won't all have restaurants but they will adopt the system so we are looking at various things i've got a few ideas which we are starting to implement sometime this year 
working with them now if you look at the clink when hospitality came into the prison to deliver training and qualify a prisoner as a waiter or as a cook there was a 68% drop in reoffending it wow. is the highest in That's the incredible. world i had no idea mm. 68% drop in reoffending now when these people are put into industry yes is difficult because it's difficult for people to accept an ex con but they are monitored they are protected they are monitored the staff are told not told they want that individual to tell the staff that listen i am an ex con but i want to work mm. with you i want to get back into community i want to start building my life up again and i need your help and support to do that i don't want to go back in there i want to do something better with my life but 68% drop in reoffending now that just goes to show what it takes for us to be a little bit more pragmatic in one sense but also hospitality brings community yeah. together yeah my what what and and Absolutely. also you talk about sort of being able to solve many problems because obviously one of the other you know big issues we're hearing from the restaurant industry because of covid but also brexit is the lack of staff coming through now as well and actually yes. if you're a, a way to repurpose or, or re retool people so they can help out with that that drop off in in staff anything we can do on that front just helps educate and raise the prestige and gets everyone more engaged with it yes of course the clink is now getting far too much demand <laughs> is it really all of a sudden <laughs> yeah the demand has just soared for the last 2 years they could not educate the prisoners because of covid cyrus mm. i'm so, interested take, yeah. i'm interested how you, how you get to where you are today i'm curious take can you just briefly take us right back to the start what it was like for you when that you got the spark you got the inspiration because i think often you can tell why someone's passions are where they are now that ability that desire to help others sometimes comes from the origins and i'm just curious if when you first got your passion for the industry when it first hooked you where were you where were, what was what was your life like how far back do you want to go right back right back right back so i've been cooking full time since 1975 wow so that'll give you my age yeah <laughs> <laughs> since uh since 1976 i was in a full time job so yes. that's when my apprenticeship began in 1976 between 75 and 76 between college and work and college and work making a little bit of pocket money blowing it up on cinema and whatever else you can imagine <laughs> a young man does and this, this is, is in india, india yes all in india yeah and uh, the spark i am not sure maybe childhood has a spark as well is i was highly asthmatic i had to miss school very often because sometimes the attacks were so bad that i couldn't go to school i was be bent over like a question mark you know oh my god uh, but uh, so mm. being at home okay i'm really sick really ill but come 9 o'clock and i can hear the school bell going i start feeling better funny that <laughs> right okay so i'm not going to school anymore but i start mm. feeling better suddenly and what does a young guy do at home he troubles his mother <laughs> yeah right i can't go out i can't play i can't go out and play because that's not right so i'm at home pestering mom next thing mom hits up on a brain wave to get me involved with her in the kitchen and so little by little i got more involved of course she in her apron she had a hanger with the hook remote tucked into her apron and every now and then it came out like a sword and got <laughs> waved at me like that yeah and every so often the wave 
went a little further, of course, and why they got something on your bottom or you got something somewhere else. <laughs> so maybe there. And then I started doing bits and pieces in the house. I would steal chapatis and crispen them and sell them to my sister and my cousins and make a bit of pocket money from them. <laughs> then when I went to boarding school, I was in a boarding school. In the village, my uncle owned a hotel. So once a month, I was allowed to spend a weekend with them. And most of my time got spent hanging around the kitchen. And they were very mm. traditional, very old-fashioned, very English style. Everybody came down for breakfast at a particular time. People came for lunch. They got served a soup, then a main course and a dessert. And it was all like that. It was very formal. Huh. Okay? It was very classical, old-fashioned. Indians don't like that at all. But the people who visited the hotel were, came on business or whatever, and they they fall, fell into that structure. And so after doing my A-levels, got through script, through whatever you call it, and then I was in a limbo. So I loved ag agriculture. I loved uh, nature. I loved the outdoors. And I thought maybe I would go down the agricultural route until my sister's friend invited me to come to her college and have a look at the college. And that's it. My thinking switched suddenly. And I thought, yeah, I could do something here. There was no... There was no real understanding of career within hospitality that time. All you were thinking about was a job mm. and I would be a chef and I would cook and become a chef. But there wasn't a path that was ever described to us because people didn't leave jobs. People stayed in the same job for 30, 40 years. You know? And so progress was never something that you could aspire to very quickly. It wasn't fast. But anyway, mm. I managed my way up. I became the youngest executive chef in India of a five-star resort, five-star deluxe resort. Wow. Uh, and uh, then I took over two resorts. So I was looking after two resorts at the time and uh, did very well. Then climbed the radar, became within the whole group of the Taj Hotel group. I was the fourth most senior chef within the group because of where I stepped. And then, of course, they decided to transfer me to Calcutta to open a new hotel there, massive hotel with a 3,000 banqueting facility, blah, and blah. Oh, and of 3, course, yes, and that's Indian weddings are no less than 1,000 people, you know that. But that's not, that. that's cooking on a scale that is, is unimaginable at times. It's yes, like army it's a, cooking. It's, it's an army cooking. It's an army cooking. But my boss, who I was married to, refused to come in. <laughs> There's the boss is just walking here. There's the boss. Hello, 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 boss. Joined a friend, opened a restaurant in a city called Pune. Partner, the restaurant became very successful, but the partnership was on the doldrums. And we decided to migrate to Australia. Wow. Right? Wow. So I was getting lots of offers from various hotel groups in India. The offer we were pouring in, including the Taj Group. The Taj Group said, you come back on your terms. Whatever you want, we will give you. You come back, we want you back. But we said, let's give it a shot. And um, I had an open invitation from Mr. Bob Hawke at the time to come to Australia. 
because I had looked after him during the Commonwealth Summit in India, where he looked after 48 heads of state. You know, it was a nightmare. Mm. Mrs. Thatcher <laughs> down the line, oh, and um, <clears throat> Indira Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher. So, and um, she sent the letter off to the High Commission, and there we go. We got immigration into Australia, but we didn't want to go there. It was not. I was not keen on going to Australia. It's too far for me. I thought it's back or beyond. <laughs> so we did waste all our money, whatever life series or blew them up, went to Australia, had a nice holiday. Friend of mine called up, asked if I'd like to come and work in London and landed up here. Good Lord, that's amazing. Yeah. What a, I mean, they say, I mean, I'm just thinking, they always say join the Navy and see the world. But, you know, the point is you, you can see the world through the world of food and, and it can take you anywhere. That's, well, that's it's taken I'm me to many hearing, places. It can take you anywhere. It depends on what your uh, abilities are. One. Number two. Mm -hmm. is uh, how open you are to do things. And I think our industry has so much that it gives people. It gives you a meaning mm -hmm. in life. You may not become very rich. I know some of the people, like the people you work with and others become wealthy. Some like me will never become wealthy. But we have a great life. And uh, we work with great people. We have a great family of people we work with. And uh, I've got millions. Thousands of friends. Oh, I, yeah, and I just wondered whether it was that sense of community that you you picked up on through your journey early on that we, you were maybe drawn to, because it's clearly a passion of yours. And I wonder when you were at college and and things, did you get that beginning of a sense of real family and and strength in numbers and being part of something? Well, college was, important? as you know, fun, but hospitality in India is no fun. You have twenty four subjects to work with. <laughs> But yes, I got into trouble with the head. I had to paint an entire wall of the college once because I scaled the pipes and ran from the other side to play table tennis at 7 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <coughs> Left my footprints all over the wall. And she came and asked, you know, who was that who scampered, skipper over the wall? I put my hand up. Okay, you're going to paint the whole wall. I have to paint the wall. So, I mean, we are still friends. Our classmates, are, we are still friends. We have a WhatsApp group. We... Once, twice, three times a year, we chat on a Zoom call just to see how everybody's aged. Some sagging, some not so sagging. <laughs> but uh, <coughs> it, it, the boarding school gives you that community feel. Yeah, that's. And I'm closer to my boarding school buddies than I am with my college mates. And we are still very close. We're very tight. We discuss each other's problems or whatever as well. I think you have to be brought up in a particular way to love people, to be able to work with people and to understand and enjoy and respect everybody for what they are and their particular mm. skills. We sometimes look for something deeper than what the person can offer you. And I think you've got to find yeah. a role for the people that you have on board and make the best of that rather than try and impinge upon them and change, try and change the way they are because that doesn't happen in a hurry. Least of all with That's Asians. Very wise words. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the message is, you know, you can't, it's impossible to change people. You know, you see, you have to adapt yourself to get the best out of the people that you've got and keep them absolutely. with you as long as you can. I think that's, that's the I way to do it. You know, and I wondered, you know, in terms of the kind of food that you've always cooked, I mean, when when you when you think about where where that comes from, is that something from, from your mother you were talking about? Is that part of your, your education at college? The, the food style that you have now where does that have its origin? Where does that, where, where does that come uh, from? Many things. Mom was a great 
domestic cook. She put something on your tongue that lasts forever. That was very much uh, a more experienced kind of an individual. He made me aware of many, many, many things. Uh, and uh, he used to go hunting as well. So I grew up when we spent a few years of my life in Rajasthan, eating grouse and pheasant and partridge and quails and wild boar and deer and buck, all sorts of things, which is what comes on my menu. Because as a child, I grew up eating these things, which many Indians don't have the opportunity or haven't had the opportunity. And uh, uh, the stories that I got it excited me as well. When I joined the Taj group, I was put into learning classical French cooking, which you did bit in college, came into the hotel, it all changes. So from being in the saucier section and then you go through the soup and the vegetables and everything else, <coughs> I was sent to Switzerland by the hotel group to get some more training. So I did my patisserie in Switzerland, I went back into some classical cooking, had an opportunity to work with a master called Paul Bocuse, little bit here, there, Not worked with master. a few other French chefs. And all of that put together gave me, so I mm. went and trained at the Oriental Cookery School in Bangkok to open the first Thai restaurant for the Taj group in India. And uh, so all those things together allows me to mix and match and play with things. And I'm mad. I mean, I see things, I get excited. So <laughs> I still like a little child. So, so anything cool, I see. Yeah. After cooking from 1975 onwards, that's, a, that's just to keep that passion and that interest evolving as you, as you have is a, is a delight. It really is. And I think that at, we can hear the restaurant gearing up in the background. So I'm afraid shortly we're going to be running out of time. But one thing I wanted to do is just almost bring it back to where we begun and and let you sort of speak to our restaurateurs who listen and the people out there who are struggling at the moment just in terms of the future and hope uh, you know reasons for hope reasons for evolution reasons for people to stick with it working in this industry and yeah. owning restaurants working on it what can you say to all those guys out there who are you know feeling the pinch at the moment well i think we're all feeling the pinch we struggle to find the money for the next paycheck, for the next salary. We are all in a bad boat. We have to struggle. We have to fight. We have to keep reinventing to make sure that we try and get people through our doors to get some income and revenue and to make all our costs. Things will get better. This is the second oldest profession in the world. <coughs> we don't discuss the oldest one, but this is the second oldest profession. <laughs> right? It's come through the ages, it's come through wars, it's come through atomic bombs, it's come through everything. This is another phase in our lives, it's a test. And it's a test for us to be resilient, to be persevering, to be passionate, to keep on doing the right things, because you're so tempted to do the wrong things. You may want to buy cheap ingredients, you may want to buy cheap food, you may want to, you don't do that. You maybe do less, Mm. but you still do the best and we will pull through because we have to pull through we have the passion we have the energy we have the people we have the skills we have the mindset just that we just don't give in and i think the industry will be in a better position when uh, this thing eases itself or people come to terms with it and say 
let it be i am going out and making fun having fun if it if something is going to happen to me so be it as it happened tuberculosis happened malaria happened typhoid happened dysentery happened smallpox happened everything happened i think the industry needs to plod on but the industry needs to come together i made a very strong suggestion to lisa from the caterer and i said lisa start a small fund let every hospitality business from the smallest to the greatest give whatever they can contribute into a fund make it massive it will be worth millions and let's start our own marketing campaign about how great this industry is and you will have enough money to put it into television advertisements to put it on hoardings to put it into every form of social media and make this industry sound appealing okay there are few of us who oh, keep yes. fighting we launched our own competition zestquest asia which is on my chest there because i am afraid nobody wants to look at asian cuisine for example we failed we opened a school called the asian oriental school of catering the government didn't trust us or didn't believe in it took away my funding we lost a lot of money so we started a competition to target students who want to become chefs and let them look at asian cuisine i was talking about it just this afternoon because the next one is launched and the winning team goes to an asian cap asian city for 10 days so we have to raise What's a lot of money zest quest yeah zest quest. quest asia wow we have to raise a, i have to go around with a begging bowl to sponsors because a trip and a running the competition is expensive yeah but we need them to see a foreign country we need them to smell it to sense it to see it to experience it to come back excited and to say that yes asian cuisine is on the rise in britain and i can look at that also as a career i don't have to be asian i can be black blue white green yellow purple violet i can be anything if i can cook french food you can cook indian food i was just going to say if anyone listening is 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 wanting to know about more about this stuff and obviously contact us and we can direct them towards cyrus and and the various links and things of course you know this is really about you know if if you've got that spark lit in you already and you're looking for something you know to 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 follow and and get involved in and i think a lot of what cyrus is saying is going to chime with you and and do get in touch and and we will direct you anywhere we can towards all of these things that cyrus is talking about i think that's and really going to cyrus restaurants please <laughs> yes. Well, and I was going to get yes. to the final point. <laughs> Please, you know, we didn't. We haven't really talked about the delicious food that Cyrus also just happens to make in between all these things that he does. But absolutely, where is the restaurant exactly at the moment, Cyrus? Tell well, us. Well, at the moment, the Cafe Spice Namaste is now in its new location, the Royal Albert Wharf in the in Newham. And what's so the? Is there a website address that people can can? Is it just website cafe? is www.cafespice.co.uk. There you yeah. go. That's how you can make a difference out there. Is you can just go and eat lovely food, and, and uh, when we absolutely. and when we post that we 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 post some, we'll post on Instagram the various links to to Cyrus's world, so you can you, know, you if you're interested and want to connect with him, and obviously we'll make sure you can do that. Yeah, it's wonderful. But um, Cyrus, I mean, genuinely fantastically inspiring stuff, and hugely appreciated. And what you're doing and the passion with which you speak about it is inspiring, but also making a huge difference, which I know you know. I I would love to see you as the minister for hospitality. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, that would ruffle a few fur. Can you imagine you walking into a cabinet meeting and giving everyone your traditional squeeze of a shoulder just to wake them all up, Cyrus? That would get them sitting up straight. I just think they need someone like you in there just to make them listen. It's to a what short you're hop saying. to. Prime Minister from there as well, I think. Absolutely, yeah. There might be a fatwa on my head for that. <laughs> 
Oh, what a delight. Cyrus, thank you so much for the time. And it's a pleasure. all the very best for the coming months and years. It's, it's wonderful thank what you, you're doing. Thank you. And, and do come back and join us on, and, and you know, if you can spare any time. I know you've yeah. got so little of it you know, to give away, but if you can, I would, would love to have you. I know what you like. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk food there. next time. We'll talk like. all about the food next time. We'll talk only food Only food. Next time. Only yes. food. And eggs. <laughs> and the experience. <laughs> and eggs. And potato and butter. <laughs> Cyrus, thank you. James, that was wonderful. Until next week, I'll speak to you very soon. Take care, guys. All the best.